something back there. I wasn't too sure about that. Take your Bibles, please, very quickly, and let's go to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. Uh, about three or four years ago, I had an opportunity to teach a course on the book of Romans in a Bible college in Kenya, Africa. And I really enjoyed my study in the book and, and came up with a lot of sermons. And when I came home, I was so excited about the book of Romans. That's all I was preaching. My wife said, honey, there are 65 other books in the Bible you can preach from. And she said almost the same thing to me this week, because we've been in the book of Psalms every study this week. So, honey, for your sake, next week we'll go back to the book of Romans. <laughs> there are two books from which I preach. I want to read the first four verses of Psalm 40. David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful week of encouragement, even for us, Lord. Our hearts have been stirred, my wife and myself, and we've been blessed by the hospitality and the encouragement and the friendship of these dear folk and their pastor. We pray, Father, that the best years for Westside Baptist Church are yet ahead as you tarry. We would pause tonight to give you heartfelt gratitude for solving the problem with the property. And, for, Lord, it's just a, a, a picture of your typical grace. And I pray that this will redound to your glory and that many folks will be won to Christ in the new property, in the new building. We recognize that it's just a building. But, Father, it has been dedicated to your glory for your service. And I pray that nothing will take place in that facility that will bring dishonor to your blessed name. Uh, thank you for Pastor's faithfulness. He's 37 years. And thank you for the faithfulness of his leaders and the people here. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless them as they remain faithful to your word and to your will. Bless our hearts now as we study together. Uh, for those who may be here without the saving knowledge of our dear Savior, Lord, may tonight be the night of the new birth for them. May tonight be the night when the angels of heaven rejoice over one sinner that repents. Do that work of grace now in each heart that needs to be done and for which we'll thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 1, I, I, want to, I want to share with you four thoughts from these verses. Number one, the idea of sorrow for sin in verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he under, inclined unto me, and he heard my cry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, the Bible speaks there about a godly sorrow for sin that, lead, that leads one to a repentance not to be repented of. Folks, we need to have a brokenness over sin. In the 130th Psalm, out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine eyes be attentive to the voice of my supplication. And here's an interesting verse, verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Think about that. But there is forgiveness with thee. Aren't you glad for that? There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest fear 
that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. So there's this idea of a godly sorrow for sin. In the 38th Psalm, verse 17, David said, I am ready to halt my sorrow is continually before me. And it was not a sorrow that uh, he had gotten called into sin, nor a sorrow that he had to face the consequences, but a godly sorrow that he ever had committed sin in the first place and thereby became guilty of offending a holy God. And then he went on to say in verse 18, I will declare mine iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. Folks, today people don't call sin, sin anymore. They call it bad judgment. They call it mistakes. They call it anything but sin. Anything but iniquity. We're living in an age right now in an immoral nation. And folks, our nation has literally gone to the morality of dogs. Not all of us, thank God. But there's, there, but, and maybe not even a majority, but there's enough people, folks, that now we're supposed to not just tolerate. So you can live that way if you want to, but we're supposed to accept it. They don't accept our way of life. Why should we accept theirs? They can disagree with us, but we can't disagree with them. Listen, folks, we must call sin what God calls sin. When the government says sin is right, the government's wrong. And if the Supreme Court says we have to accept what's wrong, we have to obey God rather than man. Respectfully so, but we must never give in on biblical principles. David says, I will be sorry for my sin. What sin was he talking about? Adultery. Adultery is a sin. Now today the sodomite doesn't care if you call adultery a sin, but you dare not call sodomy and same-sex marriage a sin. You dare not call this new this new restroom philosophy, this new restroom governmental dictate, which, by the way, is completely unconstitutional and has totally sidestepped the authority of the states according to the Tenth Amendment of our Constitution. It is wrong. It is sin. It is wickedness. It is immoral. Nothing good can be said about it. David said, I will be sorry. For I said, one day, folks, America is going to be sorry. But I fear that when that sorrow comes, it may be too late to do anything about it. God is going to judge America. God's going to judge all the nations. Don't you dare think that we're going to be exempt. We've slaughtered more than 60 million helpless unborn babies. Oh, you dare not eat an eagle egg to keep from surviving because an eagle egg is an unborn eagle. But an unborn baby is not a human being. There is something wrong with common sense and logic in America today. Folks, it is sin. And until we declare our iniquity, until we acknowledge our sin, there's no hope that we're ever going to experience the forgiveness of that sin. Notice in our text here, when we cry, notice there are six things that God does. Now, the word he is mentioned a couple of times. It is certainly implied in other times. For example, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he, God, Jehovah, inclined unto me, and he implied, heard my cry. He brought me up out of the horrible pit. He brought me out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock. He established my goings. He put a new song on my folks. They're all the things that God does in converting a soul. From a sinner to a saint. You don't have to be canonized by a denomination to be a saint. In fact, then what is probably ain't. That's a nice grammatically incorrect statement, but it's true. 
Folks, we are saints by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we all live very saintly, but we are called saints in Christ. So that's what God does. He, he takes our life and he changes us. Notice the salvation from sin in the first part of verse 2. Notice what he says here. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit. Out of the miry clay. Folks, God does not save us in our sin. God saves us from our sin. The angel Gabriel announcing the birth of Jesus to Joseph in Matthew 1 and verse 21 said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people, finish the verse, from their sins. Now there's a false teaching making the circles, the rounds of so-called fundamentalism and more the evangelical than the fundamental crowd that has this idea that repentance is only a change of mind, only a change in attitude, has nothing to do with lifestyle. I could not disagree more. I will agree that technically repentance is a change of attitude, but it's also resulting in a change of action. In other words, if there's no change in your actions, that's evidence that there never was a change in attitude. A change in attitude where I'm sorry for my sin means, by God's grace, I don't want to keep living in that sin. There's going to be a difference in my... There are new goals. There's a new life. There, there, are, there are new aspirations now, not for the old, narrow ways of sin. Folks, there's no more horrible pit than the pit of sin. There's no more miry clay than the miry clay of sin. You ever set foot in miry clay? I remember one time years ago, I was with a pastor up in northwest Pennsylvania near Edinburgh. And we were fishing on a lake. Unfortunately, it was not Edinburgh Lake. It was another lake. Edinburgh Lake gets fished real heavily. This was a lake that was owned by a farmer and doesn't get fished much at all. And no wonder it's so hard to get to. I almost stepped on a copperhead walking through there. And I had my boots on. And all of a sudden, I stepped down to the soft, miry stuff. And you pull, and you pull, and you pull. And finally, your foot comes out and your boot's still there. Miry clay. When we were in Alaska back in 1985, we drove down by the Cook Inlet on the highway going from Anchorage down to, down to Kenai, the Kenai Peninsula. They say that when the tide comes in, it actually comes in as a five-foot wall of water. It's not little, uh, well, like the tide comes in most places, you can hardly see it coming in. This is a five-foot wall of water that moves at about 30 to 35 miles an hour. There's, they say that if there's no traffic on the highway... You can drive your car along the highway right along with a five-foot wall of water as it moves in. Now, when the water is out, when the tide is out, they call it the mud flats. It is a very dangerous, unforgiving place to be. We read about one bird hunter, duck hunter, I guess, who was out there, and, and you, know, you don't know where it's safe to walk. Uh, even if you know the tide's not going to come in for a few hours, uh, there, you don't know where it's safe to walk. And the, and he got stuck in one of those miry clays and just kind of a like quicksand. And the last I saw of him was the barrel of his rifle sticking out of the mud, I guess trying to get a few last gasps of air before he suffocated. To my knowledge, his body was never recovered. Folks, that's what it's like wandering in the sea of sin, the muck and the miry clay of sin. And I'm thankful that God doesn't reach down <clears throat> and save me and say, Okay, buddy. Now you're saved. Work your way out of that mess. 
Aren't you glad God in His grace reaches down from the battlements of heaven and He lifts us out of the miry clay. He lifts us out of the horrible pit. And look what else He does. He sets my feet upon a rock. There we have the idea of surrendering to the Savior. He set my feet upon a rock, which, by the way, speaks of the security of the believer. As opposed to building your house on the sand, Jesus talked about that in one of the parables, uh, that when the storms come and the wind blows, the house falls. There's a place called Grassy Sound right near uh, North Wildwood, New Jersey. Now, Wildwood, folks, the three Wildwood, there's Wildwood Crest, North Wildwood, and Wildwood proper. They are, with all due respect, they are on an island. But they don't know they're on an island. Whatever we have, we have a supporting church there, two blocks from the Atlantic Ocean. Some very dear friends there. Uh, but folks, when they talk about going to the mainland, they say we're going offshore. I say no, you are already offshore. <laughs> it's like we're the USA, and over there <clears throat> is offshore, the island of North America. <clears throat> Well, anyway, there's this little place. There's only a few of the houses left now. They've built a new highway. <clears throat> and there's still a little road you can get down and look at it. And they build these houses on pilings. Now, when the tide comes in, you know, it, it looks real nice. When the tide is out, it's mud and it stinks to high heavens. And it's murky. And, and I don't know what they do about plumbing and running water. I don't, I don't know if these houses ever have running water or plumbing. I guess you have to go to the Wawa to do that. I don't know. Uh, that's a that's like a local AMPM store. Anyway, uh, these houses dri- drive the pilings down, and some of the houses you see are all tilted this way because over time the pilings some get sucked down, some work their way up. And I thought, man, I wouldn't want to live in those houses, summer vacation or not, you know. But there's some people that want to live their life that way spiritually, and they're just kind of up and down, and there's no solidity to them. There's no, there's no solid character in their life. Listen, God wants to put you on a rock. And that rock, by the way, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in, in Exodus 17, verse, uh, verse 6, he is described there as the smitten rock. In uh, Psalm 31, he is described as the strong rock. By the way, he was smitten but one time in the plan of God. When Moses smote the rock the second time, he violated the command of God. He was forbidden to enter the land of promise. And he, and he destroyed the object lesson that God was building into that rock. And gave credence to those who say, well, we're going to offer the sacrifice of Jesus again and again. A thing called the Mass. Listen, an unbloody sacrifice, according to the Word of God, if you check out even the Catholic Bible, you'll find this to be so, an unbloody sacrifice is a worthless sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood is no remission or forgiveness of sin. The Lord Jesus was to be smitten only once. In Psalm 31, he is described as the strong rock. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, he is described as the solid rock. And in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians, or rather 1 Corinthians, he speaks about that rock in the wilderness, and he says, quote, that rock was Christ. Now, not literally, but symbolically. The elements of the communion service, folks, are only symbols. When Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, he didn't, he didn't take a, la- a lance and, la- and cut himself and pour his blood into a cup and let the guys drink it. He didn't cut some pieces of flesh off his arm and give it to the disciples, folks. They were all symbols representing his body and his blood. 
So he took us out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, security. But then notice also in verse uh, verse 2, uh, he uh, established my goings. That's surrender. That's service. God just doesn't save us and put us on a rock and let us go there. He has a purpose for that. There, there's a reason that he saved us. And by the way, the reason he saved you and me was not just so we could miss hell. But so we could serve him with our life and gratitude for what he has done for us. He established my goings. Keep your finger here, please, and turn over with me for just a moment or two to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And notice with me verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. That is conversion. You don't say, well, I'll accept Jesus, but not as my Lord. One cannot be saved and willingly, knowingly, uh, reject the lordship of Christ. Now, I'm not teaching lordship salvation, but I'm saying you, you can't be saved. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll save you, but he's not going to control me. That's evidence of a lack of repentance. That's a evidence of a lack of conviction for sin, without which there is no salvation. Having therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. Remember we talked about that on Sunday morning. Walking in him, living our life. Notice, and he tells us how we're to walk in him, verse 7. Rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been thought, taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. He uses the analogy of, of, of agriculture being rooted. We looked at that in Psalm 1 and verse, uh, verse 2. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And then he uses the analogy of architecture and built up in him. We all know that any structure is only as good as the foundation upon which it sits. The foundation of America was built upon the family and the principles of the Word of God. And as the family is being attacked and undermined, and as the principles of the Word of God are being thrown aside, the foundation of our national heritage is crumbling. And unless God supernaturally intervenes, unless God's people decide they want to sell out to Jesus Christ and quit living in and for and of the world, there's not much hope for our country in the future. I don't want to be a prophet of doom. But folks, we need to get right with God. We need to do business with God. We need to be the salt of the earth. That One of the characteristics of salt is to hold back corruption. And so notice he established my goings, going back to Psalm 40. There's another verse comes to my mind, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature. What passes away? Old things. And what, what becomes new? All things. And what do all things do? They become new. They're not automatically, but there's a process of spiritual growth there. Can I, can I pastor respectfully give you the contemporary Christian musician's version of that verse? <laughs> if any man be in Christ, he is the same creature. Old things remain the same. A few new things are added. That's what the CCM church is all about. Just the same old rock, uh, rock music. Just the same old compromise with the world. No difference in the church in the world. And yet the world instinctively knows that there is supposed to be a difference. The world looks at many Christians today and says, I thought you said you were a Christian. Man, you're supposed to be different from me. Why do I need to, quote, be saved? You say you're saved. You don't live any different than I do. It means I must be okay the way I am. Do you realize how many so-called professing Christians in the contemporary Christian church scene today are a stumbling block to people being truly saved because of their worldly lifestyle that's no different from the unconverted. 
So he establishes my goings. In verse 3, notice number 4, the song of the saints. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. Notice the word fear here. Several years ago, I I got into a discussion with a young man who was not happy with the book I had written called um, Gospel Music, Blessing or Blight. It's out of print after all these years. And he was not happy with that. and He wanted to debate. He had been to a concert of uh, uh, Striper, the so-called sanctified version of Kiss, only they weren't too sanctified. Striper was so worldly that they would actually bring in a secular, unsaved rock band to kind of do the preliminary part of the program to get kids to come because I guess their music wasn't, wasn't bad enough. And so they used the world's music to get kids in so they could play more of the world's music but throw the name of Jesus into the pot. And he said the 500 kids got saved. Isn't that wonderful? They gave, they gave a little five-minute sermonette. And I said, that's terrible. He said, oh, you're against people getting saved? I said, yeah, that's why I'm an evangelist. I said, let me ask you a question, son. What was there in that two-and-a-half, three-hour concert that would cause anybody to be convicted over their sin or to begin to fear God? He said, nothing. It was a concert. It was, it was entertainment. I said, listen, then don't tell me you get a spiritual uh, result from just entertainment. Either you're evangelistic or you're entertaining. Let's be honest. Listen, the world's honest. Why can't we be honest? I said, let me tell you something, young man. You cannot feed the flesh for two to three hours with ungodly fleshly music and elicit a spiritual response. I don't doubt that 500 kids walked the aisle and prayed some kind of a prayer, but I doubt whether five, I doubt whether 499 of them got saved. You can't feed the flesh and get a spiritual response. What you sow, you reap is the Bible principle. Notice the song of the saints here. Notice the source of the song. He. I'm so glad that God gave us Christian music, aren't you? And by the way, I, I, I think you've enjoyed the music by your response, but the purpose of music is not just to entertain. I don't come here as an entertainer. But I believe that Christian music is intended by God in First Chronicles to be a ministry and a service to the Lord. To glorify Him, to focus our attention around what the song is saying. That's why I try to limit myself to the old familiar hymns that are getting less and less familiar as the older generation is fading off the scene and the new generation is coming up that never heard the old Rugged Cross. There are some out there like that. God is the source of our song. Notice the song itself. It's a new song, not a new sound. I remember years ago, back in the 70s, a so-called Christian radio station had a, had a DJ on there. And his was the new sound for the now generation. You know what that was? Compromise. All it was was a, a different expression for the world's music for a worldly carnal set of Christians. Notice the subject of our song. He has put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. He is the subject of our song. Even as He is the very subject and the substance and the source of our life, He is the subject of our song. Praise unto our God. Do you ever wonder what the difference is between the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Let me just touch on that very quickly and then we'll wrap this up. 
The Psalms, of course, was the book of Psalms set to music. The early church sang from the book of Psalms. It was a hymn book. That's why you find uh, numerous uh, musical notations scattered throughout, even, even instruments that are suggested to be accompanying the song, uh, even keys and octaves and things like that. Um, the, so, so the Psalms was the book of Psalms. Then you have the hymn. The Greek word is hymneo, and it refers to a doctrinal ode. The hymn is actually a mini, here's the way I describe it, is a mini doctrinal statement. It is about God, and it is directed to God. <clears throat> holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. One of the greatest hymns ever penned on the holiness of God. In these hymns, we, we sing about the characters, the nature of God. We're addressing God. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never fell. Love divine, all loves excelling. And then we have the spiritual song. Uh, obviously, the word song means a musical piece, and the idea of spiritual means as opposed to carnal. So I have described it this way. <clears throat> Whereas the hymn is a mini doctrinal statement set to music, the spiritual song is comparable to what we today call the gospel song, and it is a mini testimony set to music. That's why in a worship service we sing a different kind of music than we sing in a gospel and an evangelistic service. In, in, in a worship service we sing more about God, love, divine, all loves, excelling, holy, 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 mighty fortress, and hymns of that nature. But then in the evangelistic service, which used to be the evening services in most fundamental churches, we sing more evangelistic songs. Jesus saves. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Oh, how I love Jesus. I love to tell the story. All of these are testimonies. Set to music. The problem is that sometimes we're singing somebody else's testimony. And I challenge people and I challenge you. When you sing those kinds of songs. Sing it from the heart as though you were the one who wrote both the words and the music. Don't sing the words of Fanny Crosby. Sing the words from your heart as though you wrote those words. As though you wrote that music. Not John Sweeney. And I'll tell you it will transform the worship service, and the gospel singing in the congregation. And so the subject of the song is praise unto our God. And notice the salvation of sinners. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Now, many shall see it. You don't see music unless you're reading a score. You hear it. So what was it that they saw? I believe that it was the change in David's life as a result of his conversion his life was different now, and as a result of that, people saw that change that was reflected in his music. And they, it brought a sense of the fear of the Lord. Something's, something's different about David. He's not the same guy he used to be. How many times have we heard that? Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. Now, music is, Christian music is not intended as a means of salvation. Now, the three arguments to defend contemporary Christian music, they say, number one, music's all moral. It doesn't affect you. That's a lie, and, and you got to be pretty stupid to believe that. Forget, I shouldn't use words. you got to be pretty dumb to believe that. <laughs> Folks, you don't even have to have a third-grade education of music affects you. If you don't believe that, watch a third-grader uh, playing in the, in the band and his, how his foot's tapping to the music. Number two, they say, but, but Christian rock is an alternative to world's rock. No, it's not. Even most of the lyrics are not doctrinally sound, and the music's the same. And they say, but we're going to win souls with it. God never intended you to win souls with Christian music. I want to tell you something. 
You're not going to win the. You're not going to win a drunkard to Christ by getting down and getting yourself drunk and lying in the gutter with it. You're not going to win a prostitute to Christ by going into the brothel and trying to to to, to witness to her there. You're not going to win people with the same rotten music of the world that they're used to. Listen, they don't need to identify with that. They already do. They need to identify with something that's of a higher caliber. And that's what Christian music ought to be. Now, we'll tell you this. If Christian music is what it ought to be, it will have its proper biblical effect upon the sinner. But the primary person of Christian music, number one, is to glorify God. Number two is to edify the saints. And if it does that, it will evangelize. But evangelization is not the primary focus of Christian music. Uh, how many times have we heard stories from Pacific Garden Mission? Drunkards, homeless, staggering down the streets, lost everything, you know. And they're now a life of alcohol and drugs and, and just bums on the street trying to find a, a warm place in the winter and a cool place in the summer to bed down for the night and hope the dogs don't come and the rats don't come and chew their toes off. And they stagger by the Pacific Garden Mission, whose doors are usually open during their services, and the strains of good old-fashioned gospel music uh, flows out into the street. How many times has the music captured someone like that and drawn them in and to see them finally come to know Christ is here? Billy Sunday is an example of that. People will get saved if our music's the right way, but that, again, is not the purpose of it. He has put a new song in my mouth. I thank the Lord for that new song. I don't need the old songs of the world. I've got the new songs of Zion. Now, the problem we have today is some say, well, these hymns are old. We need new hymns. And so now we're beginning to compromise even in our hymn writing. And there's a generation of people trying to draw a, 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 barrier, a draw a bridge, build a bridge between fundamentalism and new evangelicalism. They want to use their music to draw the whole world, the whole body of Christ together. And they're using a compromising stuff. Oh, they write some good stuff over here, so we'll be happy with it. But they do the stuff over here. You go online, look at it. And, and folks, it, it's nothing that we would touch with a 10-foot pole. Then why are we doing it? They, they have this bridge they're trying to build between the two. Listen, that's a bridge that God doesn't want built. You know, Israel was on one side of the valley. The days of, of not Samson, uh, the giant guy. What was the name? Goliath. There you go. <laughs> Noah, the big guy Noah, right? And the Philistines were on the other side. And there was a valley between the two. Folks, the Philistines are a picture of the world. And Israel's a picture of the church. And never the twain shall meet in the plan of God Almighty. But today we're seeing the church kind of moving this way. Folks, the world isn't moving. The church is moving faster than the world to catch up with the world. So it can begin to embrace the world. And God is not pleased. Well, my time is done, and we need to wrap this up here. Uh, what a wonderful passage of Scripture here in these first few verses of Psalm 40. But it begins with a sorrow for sin. Have you experienced <clears throat> that godly sorrow for sin that leads to salvation? And that leads to surrender and service? And that leads to that new song in our heart, even praise unto our God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for our time together this week, and especially tonight now, this closing service. Hard to believe that this week is now over. But Lord, I pray that you'll continue to take the word of God and cause it to find lodging in the hearts of your people, saved and unsaved alike. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, I wonder, is there anyone here again tonight who say, Preacher, I'm not saved, I'm not sure about it, don't know if I'd die tonight, if I'd go to heaven or hell. 
I want to be saved. I want to ask you to pray for me. If that's the need and the desire of your heart, would you let me know right now just by quietly uh, slipping your hand up so I might see it? Raising a hand won't save you. My prayers won't save you. Uh, but it would show a need, and we'd like to try to help and remember you and pray for you. Anyone like that here tonight? Preacher, pray for me. I'm not saved, but I want to be. Anyone? Believer, much of what I've said tonight is focused right at you. Hope you'll take something home from this message. Apply it to your life and allow the Lord to glorify himself in and through you. Father, bless now your word to our hearts, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Pastor.